The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. If you've ever watched shows like Yellowstone, you know that sometimes out west on a ranch, there are secrets. Secrets never supposed to leave the corral. Something a ranch hand in Gunnison, Colorado would discover firsthand in 2017. Jeremy McDonald had been going about his work when he noticed two other ranchers examining something they'd uncovered, digging in the horse corral with a backhoe. And when he went in for a closer look, Jeremy saw what appeared to be rib bones, human rib bones, poking out from a dirty white sheet of plastic. It's the moment Jeremy was told, you know, you can't ever leave now, right? Join me now as we take a look into the mysterious disappearance of Jake Millison, a cattle rancher set out to inherit an entire family ranch. You'll also learn about a group of friends who stopped at nothing to force the ranch into giving up its deadliest hidden secret. Twenty-nine-year-old Jacob Millison had been talking about that day for almost a month, March 15, 2015, opening night for a new movie, Mad Max Fury Road playing at the Majestic Theater in Crested Butte, Colorado. It wasn't so much Jake was a rabid fan, he just preferred planning things well in advance. And with every good group of friends, there needs to be a glue person, the friend holding it all together, the responsible one, the planner, the one who always shows up on time and gives you grief if you don't. Jake was that guy, a trait his friends both found enduring and infuriating at the same time. Randy Martinez, one of Jake's best friends since childhood, was accompanying him that night. But when the two friends went to grab a quick bite before the show, Randy noticed his friend barely had enough money to cover his bill, just enough to cover the cost of his movie ticket. However, it all seemed just par for the course for Jake, who always seemed to be down to his last dollar. After the movie, Randy and Jake made the 35-minute drive back to their hometown of Gunnison, a Rocky Mountain town with a population of around 6,500, composed mostly of ranchers and college students from Western Colorado University. But before heading home, they decided to stop in their favorite bar in Gunnison, the Alamo Saloon. When it comes to the spirit of the American frontier and the mythology that goes along with it, there's hardly a name that's endured as long or rings as loudly as the Alamo, a battle that took place in San Antonio, Texas in 1836, where 200 Texans bravely held off thousands of Mexican soldiers before finally being overrun. 
and although it would be the death of frontiersman Davy Crockett, it would also be the birth of a battle cry, Remember the Alamo, a refrain that would go down in history during the Mexican-American War in the 1840s, and now, nearly 200 years later, is still remembered. The Alamo Saloon itself is a slightly rebellious reminder of the way things used to be in Colorado, one of the only bars in the state still allowing smoking indoors. Inside the Alamo, you'll find a pool table, pinball machine, jukebox, a Galaga and Miss Pac-Man arcade, and of course, dogs. More than welcome inside to enjoy the atmosphere of a mostly bygone era. And although the bar's namesake harkens back to a theme of remembrance, the Alamo playfully bills itself as a truly forgettable experience. It's also the place where Jake Millison ended up most nights of the week with his friends, but he never went there to drink. In fact, hardly anyone remembered ever seeing Jake order alcohol there. Instead, he'd go in, sit on his favorite stool, and order as usual a Coca-Cola. He then spent the rest of the night playing pool with some of the old-timers who taught him how to play years ago. Before Jake and Randy's evening at the Alamo ended that night, the friends made plans to meet up the following day. Jake then started his 20-minute drive back to the 7-Eleven Ranch, a place he called home. A 700-acre property he'd been raised on and was sure to inherit one day. Once at home, Jake climbed the stairs up to his bedroom and crawled into bed. He watched some stand-up comedy on his phone shortly before 2.30 a.m., followed by a Daft Punk music video before falling asleep. The next day, Randy sent Jake a text message about the plans they'd made the night before, but never heard back, which was strange, because usually it was far more likely for Jake to over-communicate rather than not respond at all. Days went by and still, no one heard a word from Jake. Soon Jake's various friends would collectively realize none of them had been in touch with him at all. On May 20th, five days after watching the Mad Max movie together, Randy and another friend decided to make their way out to the 7-Eleven ranch to check in on their friend. Now, when we use the word ranch to describe where Jake lived, we're not talking about anything fancy like the Yellowstone Ranch or the Ponderosa from Bonanza or any number of other massive and wealthy famous ranches seen on TV. The 7-Eleven wasn't that kind of ranch. Instead, it was one of a much more common and humble variety, the kind where families often struggled to earn a living off their land. And in that regard, the Millison family was no different. At that time, the 7-Eleven Ranch consisted of a main house, along with a large log cabin-style lodge, surrounded by another six smaller rustic cabins available to rent for the night. There were also paddocks for the horses and a token number of livestock roaming about to maintain the western image. Also scattered around the grounds were old vehicles and ancient farm equipment, most in various states of disrepair. When the friends arrived at the 7-Eleven, they found Jake's mother, 65-year-old Deb Rudaba, in the horse corral. Although Deb only stood about five foot nothing, 
and wouldn't weigh a hundred pounds soaking wet. She was, and had always been, an absolute battle axe of a woman, strong-willed, rugged, and not afraid to get her hands dirty. Standing alongside Deb in the corral was Jake's older sister, Stephanie Jackson, each of them working near the manure pile with a shovel in their hands. All in all, it was a pretty typical scene for choring on the ranch. There was also another familiar sight running around the property that day. Jake's dog, Elmo, a black lab he usually took with him pretty much everywhere. If Elmo was at the 7-Eleven, that meant Jake must be too, but he wasn't. When they asked Deb where Jake was, she gave them a simple explanation. He left town for a few days, off doing something or other with his buddies from his mixed martial arts gym. For the past several years, Jake had been training in a gym for four nights a week in Brazilian jiu-jitsu like clockwork. His instructor even calling him the most consistent student he'd ever had. However, earlier that month, Jake had injured his ankle pretty bad and hadn't been able to train since the injury. So although Jake's friends knew it was unlikely he'd be participating in anything MMA related, it was certainly plausible he might have accompanied the group on a trip. It would also explain why Jake's dog Elmo was left behind. But something didn't sit well with his friends, especially since Randy had just watched Jake literally spend what seemed like his last dollar when they'd gone out to the movies. An out-of-town trip now seemed a little out of the question, considering Jake's financial situation. With Gunnison being the small town it is, friends from one of Jake's friend groups managed to track down Jake's pals from the gym and started asking if they'd seen him. None of them had, and most of all, certainly hadn't taken a trip with him anywhere. Had Jake gone somewhere else and perhaps lied to his mother about his plans, or had Deb just been confused about where his son told her he was going? Either way... Deb seemed wholly unconcerned about his absence, making Jake's friends consider whether they should too. However, after a few more days went by and still no word from Jake, his friends decided to report him missing. Gunnison County Sheriff's Deputy Mark Michael started investigating Jake's whereabouts by giving his mother a call, but Deb assured him Jake was just fine that he was in Reno, Nevada for a few days, doing some MMA training. Hearing that his own family members weren't remotely worried about Jake, the sheriff's deputy labeled Jake's missing persons report to be unfounded. But then more friends started coming forward to police, reporting Jake's disappearance, and even more friends began showing up to the ranch looking for him, getting annoyed telling the same story over and over again to people. Deb had to practically shoo his friends away, and the sheriff's office seemed to be getting a bit annoyed as well. Eventually, the pressure grew to such a degree, the sheriff's deputy decided to reopen the case and make a trip out to the 7-Eleven ranch to speak to Deb in person. It was now June 2nd, a little more than two weeks since the last time anyone had seen or heard from Jake. As the sheriff's deputy spoke with Deb at the ranch, he was relieved to hear that the reports about Jake being completely missing 
wasn't in fact true. According to Deb, Jake had been right there on the ranch just two days earlier and had spoken to Deb herself. Deb told the sheriff's deputy the reason Jake had actually left in the first place was because of a heated argument they'd had, resulting in Jake storming off. But just two days earlier, on May 31st, Deb claimed Jake reappeared, this time with a friend, someone she'd never met before. Deb said she couldn't remember the guy's name exactly, could have been Matt or Mike, but if she was hoping he'd stick around to make amends, she was mistaken, because Jake left again, almost as abruptly as he'd shown up, only gathering some things before taking off. Jake had packed up all his camping gear, including some guns, cash, outdoor gear, along with practically all the canned goods from Deb's pantry. Then Jake hopped into his buddy's truck with him and headed off. When the subject of Jake's dog Elmo came up, Deb explained Jake wanted to take him along, but his friend didn't want a dog in his vehicle. There was also hardly enough room for him anyway, so Jake sadly left Elmo behind at the ranch. Judging by the amount of supplies he'd stocked up on, Deb guessed Jake would be gone for a while. Nearly satisfied with their version of events, there was still something puzzling the sheriff's deputy. Why hadn't Jake communicated with any of his friends during this time? Again, according to Deb, there was a simple explanation. Jake had dropped his cell phone in an irrigation ditch right before leaving the first time. In an attempt to save it, she said he'd put his phone inside a Ziploc bag, filled it with rice, trying to dry it out. To prove it, Deb went and retrieved the baggie, and lo and behold, there was a cell phone in rice, just like she said. To the sheriff, it was looking more and more like Jake had simply decided to go out of town for a bit, without telling friends where he'd gone, something people do all the time, and certainly not anything illegal. But as summer dragged on, there was still no sign of Jake. Eventually, it seemed, even Deb couldn't pretend she wasn't concerned any longer. And on August 4th, she officially reported her son missing. She also told police something else that was strange. Apparently, when Jake left, he'd taken one of her books, a book titled How to Disappear Without Leaving a Trace. After Deb reported her son missing, police began contacting law enforcement in other neighboring states to see if he'd popped up on any of their radars. But the trail was growing cold, and it appeared not a single soul on earth had any clue where Jake Millicent was. In October, a journalist from the Gunnison County Times wrote an expose about Jake's mysterious disappearance after interviewing Deb an article that shocked Jake's friends by what they read. According to Deb, Jake had been living a lifestyle most people weren't aware of, and in her opinion, it started when Jake started training at the martial arts gym. She claimed he'd gotten mixed up with the wrong crowd, and soon started drinking heavily and doing drugs, snorting cocaine, eating magic mushrooms, and shooting up steroids. He'd even started growing some marijuana plants on the ranch. Much of what had come out in that article were things Deb had actually already told the police when she filed her missing persons report. 
but it was the first time Jake's friends had heard anything about it. To Jake's friends, it sounded like Deb was describing an entirely different person. Because the Jake they knew was the kind of guy who always volunteered to be the designated driver, who only drank Coca-Cola at the Alamo, who never got drunk, and most certainly didn't indulge in drugs. In fact, they couldn't remember a single time, ever seeing him even take so much as a puff of marijuana. Having said that, his friends had been aware of Jake trying to grow some weed on the ranch, but it wasn't for him. Instead, he planned on selling it to college students as a way to make an extra buck. Even then, they'd all joked with him on how he'd ever test his product if he wasn't willing to even try it. Whoever Deb was describing to the press certainly didn't match the Jake they all knew. Needless to say, Jake's friends weren't only shocked by how Deb was describing their friend, they were pissed. That's when it became all too clear to all of them that no one intended on doing what needed to be done to find Jake. He'd just be forgotten, only thought about again whenever an unidentified body was discovered and reported on the news. And it simply wasn't good enough. Jake's friends felt they needed to do something to take on overwhelming odds and to fight like hell and find out what really happened to Jake Millicent out there on the windswept expanse of the 7-Eleven Ranch. To be able to understand what happened in May 2015, we need to take you back to the very beginning. When the 7-Eleven Ranch was purchased in 1964 by rancher Marion Rudaba, everyone called Rudy. During the war, Rudy served in the Pacific Theater as a frogman part of an underwater demolition team for the Navy. Not only did these frogmen serve in some of the most dangerous missions during the entire war, these teams would be the precursor to the modern-day Navy SEALs. Although Rudy was a small man in stature, he had a massive personality, and as you can probably imagine, was tough as nails too. Under his leadership, Rudy turned the 7-Eleven into a highly successful cattle ranch and outfitting operation, guiding hunting and fishing trips, gaining a reputation as one of the best hunting guides in that part of the Rockies. It wasn't until the mid-1980s that Rudy would meet Debbie Millison after she'd moved there from Ohio to start working on his ranch. Deb was married and had two kids, Stephanie, her oldest, and Jake just a year younger. But when the kids were about six and seven, Debbie and her husband divorced, with the children's father eventually moving out of state to New Mexico. Around the same time, Rudy's wife passed away, and although, at 69 years old, Rudy was 25 years older than Deb, the two fell in love and married in 1993. The 7-Eleven Ranch had now become home sweet home to not only Deb, but also her two children, Stephanie and Jake, with Rudy becoming their stepfather. Throughout their elementary school years, Stephanie and Jake were mostly homeschooled, allowing them to spend more time on the ranch helping out. In fact, it wouldn't be until high school Jake would first attend a public school, and although he was shy and introverted, 
He had a knack for making good friends. More importantly, knowing how to keep them. But as always, before friends in school came the importance of the ranch. And under his stepfather Rudy's tutelage, Jake was groomed to take over one day. As Jake prepared to become a full-time rancher in the future, his sister Stephanie prepared to get married. At 18 years old, in 2003, Stephanie met her future husband, 19-year-old David Jackson, who she'd met at a carnival passing through Gunnison. The tall and wiry teenager had been traveling from town to town with the carnival, operating its paintball booth, but after seeing Stephanie, made the spontaneous decision to ditch the carnival life to be with her. And after only a few short months of dating, the two teens got married. For Jake, it was hard to get over the fact that his sister had decided to marry a carnival worker, someone who he harbored a natural distrust and disliking for. As a wedding present, Stephanie's stepfather Rudy gave her a large advance on her inheritance so the newlyweds could buy themselves a starter home in Denver. With Stephanie and David now out of the picture, and with Rudy now approaching 80 years old, the future of the ranch, along with the bulk of the workload, now fell on 18-year-old Jake and his mother Deb's shoulders. And that's how it would be for Jake for the next eight years, a rancher who never took a paycheck for all his hard work because of an unspoken promise that one day he'd inherit the ranch worth around $3 million, an inheritance that was meant to be compensation enough. In 2009, at 85 years old, Rudy passed away, making Depp the sole owner of the property. It was from that point on, business at the ranch began deteriorating, with the ranch eventually ceasing to offer hunting trips getting rid of the bulk of their livestock, financially existing mostly on the money coming in from the cabin rentals and horseback riding. Then, three years later in 2012, Stephanie and David decided to move back to the ranch from Denver. And although Deb welcomed her daughter's return, Jake wasn't exactly enthusiastic about it. He'd never really gotten along with the sister, despised her husband, and now... After taking her inheritance early, it was clear to Jake she was trying to weasel her way back into taking a piece of the ranch for herself. The moment Stephanie moved back to the ranch, a power struggle immediately began, with the siblings arguing so much, they started trying to avoid each other entirely. In 2013, Jake and his brother-in-law, David, got into a massive argument over a snowplowing incident. An argument that got so heated, David allegedly brandished a pistol and threatened Jake. Jake's response? Apply for a restraining order against him. It was this incident that had led Jake originally to enroll in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu training. And over the next two years, Jake lost nearly 60 pounds going from weighing 230 pounds down to a fit 170. Jake also started making additional plans for his future, planning to open his own chimney sweep business. Hardly the irresponsible and freeloading 29-year-old, Deb portrayed him out to be following his disappearance. The truth was, 
Jake had been more focused and responsible than ever. But there was one thing his friends had noticed that may have rubbed Deb the wrong way. Jake's newfound confidence had him standing up to his mother's domineering control over the decisions he made at the ranch, causing a rift to develop between the two. And if there was one person who stood to benefit most from this rift, it was his sister Stephanie. Soon Stephanie began fanning the flames of resentment between her mother and Jake, even writing a blog in 2014 on Moms.com titled, My Brother is Trying to Ruin My Life. In it, Stephanie stated, How can I make my mom see that it's unhealthy for him to be there controlling her and her property like he owns it? To anyone listening, it was no secret. Jake's sister wanted him out of the picture, and the person whose ears she was whispering in the most was her mom, Deb. So Stephanie began encouraging her to see Jake as a moocher, living rent-free on the ranch, despite the decades of sweat equity he'd already put in. And just three weeks before Jake's disappearance for good, Stephanie's personal smear campaign finally bore the kind of fruit she'd been hoping for. Deb amended her will, removing Jake completely and leaving the ranch entirely to Stephanie. In October 2015, when it seemed the search for Jake was grinding to a halt, his friends started a Facebook group, Where's Jake Millison? And pretty much immediately, all the different friends who knew and cared about Jake began contributing information with some very suspicious clues arising. One of the first things brought to the attention of the group was that David, Stephanie's husband, had updated his profile picture back in June, shortly after Jake's disappearance. The new profile picture of David showed him riding a motorcycle, a motorcycle that belonged to Jake, and not just any motorcycle, Jake's baby, a 1976 Harley Sportster he'd had since high school, his most prized possession, a bike he'd never even let his friends touch, let alone ride. Everyone knew that if Jake had seen David riding it, he would have gone ballistic. It seemed like a pretty brazen thing for David to do. That is, if he believed Jake ever planned on returning. Eventually, Jake's friends tracked down the Harley, along with three other bikes Jake owned, all sold to a motorcycle shop, their titles signed over to them by Deb. Again, not the sort of actions you'd expect from a family anticipating Jake's return. Another friend added another disturbing recollection about seeing Deb and Stephanie burning Jake's mattress just days after he'd gone missing. Again, Deb had a perfectly simple explanation. Bed bugs. After nearly another year, the information accumulated on the Facebook site was finally enough to get a prosecutor and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation's attention in 2016. And after a little more digging, a very disturbing picture began to emerge. One of the first things found was a post on Stephanie's Facebook just days after Jake had vanished stating, Have you ever been woken up to such awesome news you wanted to run outside screaming? To which a friend quickly responded, No more Jake? Only news worth screaming about. Stephanie, it seemed, was a little too excited about her brother's disappearance. 
With Jake no longer at the ranch, Stephanie and David were now running the show, hoping to restore the business to its former glory days. But in 2016, Deb was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and her health began deteriorating rapidly. It was only a matter of time before Stephanie would be the sole owner of the 7-Eleven. Realizing they needed some extra help on the ranch, Stephanie's husband David reached out to a longtime friend, Jeremy McDonald, and invited him to come live and work on the ranch. It was a year after he started working there, more than two years after Jake's disappearance, that Jeremy saw something he never expected to see in the middle of the horse corral. David had been operating the backhoe with Stephanie standing nearby when they uncovered what appeared to be a human body. Jeremy could see a rib cage and what looked like the remnants of a pair of jeans. Since he started working on the ranch, Jeremy had heard all about Jake's disappearance. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for the family to bring it up over dinner. In his heart, Jeremy knew what he was looking at, what was left of Jake Millison. After unearthing the remains, Stephanie ran into the house to speak with Deb. When she returned, she told Jeremy it was just the bones from a bear or some other illegal game Jake must have shot. The remains were then immediately covered up. Stephanie then looked Jeremy straight in the eyes and said, you know you can't ever leave here now, right? It was a threat and Jeremy knew it. He needed to keep his mouth shut. However, two months later, on July 17th, 2017, police showed up to the 7-Eleven ranch with a search warrant and a team of cadaver dogs. At first, Deb feigned ignorance, but when they told her about the cadaver dogs, she changed her tune, now confessing to murdering her son. The confession was casual and entirely emotionless, with Deb showing police the horse corral where they'd ultimately find Jake's body exactly where she said it would be, buried alongside a barrel of discarded sheep and goat skulls. According to Deb, she'd walked up to Jake's bedroom on the same night he was leaving to go to the movies. In her version of events, they'd gotten into a heated argument, ending with Jake demanding Stephanie be removed from her will. She said he even threatened to kill her if she refused. What happened next, Deb claimed, was the equivalent of preemptive self-defense. In her mind, it was either kill or be killed. So after Jake had gotten home from the movie that night and had fallen asleep, Deb claimed she took out her 357 revolver and shot him in the head, then dragged his body from his bedroom upstairs to a manure pile outside where she buried him. Even with the full confession, something still wasn't adding up. Was it really possible for a 97-pound, 65-year-old woman dying of cancer to do everything she was claiming she did? A woman who'd also had gallbladder surgery nine days before allegedly moving her 170-pound son out of the house all by herself. Again, Deb had an answer. She'd apparently used a combination of ropes, winches, an ATV, come-alongs and a front-end loader to accomplish the task all by herself, referring to it as her Yankee ingenuity. 
Now, while it all seems a bit impossible, any rancher will tell you, you don't spend your entire life on a ranch without being able to accomplish the impossible from time to time, especially when your back's up against the wall. But it wasn't just what Deb was claiming that seemed impossible. It was that it seemed far more probable she was falling on the sword for someone else, perhaps covering up for someone else's crimes. With her imminent death on the horizon, Deb had nothing to lose by taking the blame. There was, however, someone else who had a lot to gain from it. The bit of evidence that suggested that was an amended will police would discover during their search of the property, stating Deb would be leaving everything to Stephanie after she died. Shockingly, it would take seven more months before anyone was arrested, but in early 2018, Deb, Stephanie, and David were all charged with first-degree murder. David's friend Jeremy agreed to cooperate with the investigation, with his testimony proving that both Stephanie and David had known Jake was dead and buried right there on the ranch. But for how long? Had they known since the beginning? Had they been there when it happened? According to Jeremy, it appeared to him David had been legitimately shocked when they uncovered Jake's body that day in the corral. Stephanie's reaction, on the other hand, seemed different. The evidence seemed to suggest she'd most likely known the entire time. Just two days before Jake's disappearance, Stephanie had messaged a friend that Deb was planning to kick Jake off the ranch soon. Then, on the night of the murder, Jake's last cell phone call activity was recorded at 2.30 in the morning. Stephanie's phone records revealed that just after 3.15 a.m., she received an email from an unknown sender that read, It's time to play, a message she deleted just six minutes later. Court records also show that in the days after Jake's murder, Stephanie was quoted as saying to someone, Now I can do what I moved up here to do. And then just two days after the murder posted on Facebook, big things happening for Jackson family this year. But possibly the most convincing piece of evidence was what had occurred right after police raided the ranch. When police told Stephanie, Debbie confessed to Jake's murder all by herself. This is when Stephanie became extremely emotional, acting a bit shell-shocked, asking, How? How had Deb managed to move Jake from his bedroom all the way to the corral by herself? The only problem was, police hadn't yet told Stephanie where Deb claimed she killed Jake. Throughout it all, Deb stuck by her story till the very end. She was the only one who'd ever been involved with Jake's murder and burial on the ranch. With her willingness to take the entire rap for the murder, proving that either Stephanie or David had been complicit would certainly be a challenge for prosecutors. In the end, Deb agreed to plead guilty to second-degree murder and was given a sentence of 40 years. However, with the advanced stage of cancer she was in, any sentence would have certainly been a life sentence. When Deb showed up for her sentencing, she sat in a wheelchair, weighing only 70 pounds, dependent on an oxygen tube to breathe. While addressing the court, 
she emphasized that her daughter Stephanie had nothing to do with any of it. My daughter Stephanie Jackson in no way knowingly had anything to do with Jake's death or subsequent cover-up. Not long after she was sent to prison, Deb passed away in 2019. Stephanie's husband, David, would eventually plead down his murder charge to a single charge of tampering with a deceased human body and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He's eligible for parole in 2023. In a fairly stunning move, prosecutors allowed Stephanie to also plead down her murder charge, never wavering from her claims. She hadn't known Jake was dead until the day they'd all found his bones in the corral together. This is what Stephanie had to say when given the opportunity to speak on her own behalf during sentencing. What I am guilty of is believing the stories and lies my mother told everyone for over two years. I would also like to apologize to my father, my grandparents, my extended family, and anyone else who's been affected by my mother's heinous actions. In her view, Stephanie had simply been the victim of her mother's lies and manipulation. However, playing the victim card in front of the judge didn't go the way she probably hoped. Instead, the judge gave Stephanie the absolute maximum penalty under Colorado law, 26 years in prison. The motivation behind why exactly Deb Rudabaugh was willing to murder her own son may remain a mystery forever, a secret she was willing to take to the grave. But reading between the lines reveals, at its core, a family dynamic with a power struggle for ultimate control of the ranch, a story filled with lies, greed, and deception. While it can't be proven whether Jake really ever took the book from his mom entitled How to Disappear Without Leaving a Trace, given what we know now, it's probably unlikely. More probable is that she told this to police to put them off the track of what had really happened to Jake. And while many suspect Stephanie as the mastermind behind the murder, it remains a crime she's never been convicted of. Another tragic element surrounding Jake's murder is the other victim in this whole unfortunate case, a young boy whose life was uprooted and turned upside down, Stephanie and David's son, only about 10 years old at the time when his parents and grandma were facing possible death sentences. One of the reasons Stephanie and David claimed to move back to the ranch from Denver was to give their son a better childhood. Instead, he was left without his mom, dad, grandma, and uncle, and moved out to Utah to live with extended relatives. However, the resilience of this young boy cannot be understated. When he was only seven years old, he experienced a traumatic event that nearly cost him his life. A horse at the ranch had kicked him so severely in the head, requiring part of his skull to be removed to relieve the pressure to his brain. After being unconscious for eight days and a year of therapy, he recovered. Eventually, even finding the courage to go back up on the horse who injured him, 
In the end, although Jake may have always been the glue holding the disparate parts of his friend groups together, when it mattered most, they all realized their own ability to come together and find justice for him. Both the prosecutor and Gunnison law enforcement have credited Jake's friends for keeping his story alive, collecting evidence that ultimately led to his family members' convictions. Their actions remind us of the words of English philosopher Aldous Huxley. Blood, as all men know, is thicker than water, but water is wider, thank the Lord, than blood. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at Madness Pod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.